Here in the power of Christ we stand this day. We stand before you praising you, Lord, and preaching your word in season and out. We pray you would receive it as it is intended to glorify you in heaven and your children to be edified in the earth. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be opening to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. I've been reading for the last few weeks, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to move on to verses 8 through 10. I may throw in verse 11 as I read. So let's go there. Romans 13, verses 8 through 11. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Amen. Amen. So, Father, we praise you for this exhortation this morning. All right, so there we have the great statement. I hope it comes across to you as it's intended. It's a culmination of what he's taught for 12 chapters now, a little more than 12 chapters. And... um, We're going to do what we should do when you're teaching a series on a book is we're going to try to pull the whole book together. Because if we don't, we miss something. You miss something. And he writes here, Oh, no man anything except to love one another, for he who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Now, if we weren't doing a series, I would have to preach from, if I was preaching from this verse, I would have to preach on the evils of financial debt. Which, of course, this verse has nothing to do with. And I hope to disabuse you of that belief this morning. Because my whole Christian life, whenever we came here, I had to listen to some preacher tell me that this is about not having a mortgage on my house. Or not going to the bank, or not lending something to a friend. Pastor Ken used to say, if you're going to lend someone something... Make sure it's something you can afford to give away because he's probably not giving it back. Ken was very generous and he would always lend and give. So I want to begin this new section by making that one emphatic declaration. This is not in any way the Apostle's verse on investment advice. Now, I've heard it used, as I said many times, out of context, as though Paul went from talking about law in government and about our Christian responsibilities towards the authorities that be to pivot to the subject of loans and mortgages and the evils of financial debt. So let's take a look at it. You know, I run into this also uh, on the Thursday evening session where we're in the book of Ephesians. And when I got there, we come across the, the, the verse that says, uh, it reminds me of this verse, be not drunk with wine, wherein is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I always make the point, this isn't a verse about the evils of drinking to excess and being drunk, which are, are of course evil, that's why he can make the comparison. This verse is dedicated to another subject entirely. It's not Paul's sudden change from teaching about the new life in Christ to a message on the evils of drink. And I'll speak at length on that in Romans 14 when we get there. 
What he's doing there is comparing one form of fulfillment with another form. A fleshy form to a spiritual form. A form that men choose and recognize and a form that men should search for and seek and desire. He's speaking about two ways of life. One is fleshy. The other is spiritual. One is being full of oneself, drunk with wine. The other is being full of Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit. One is being intoxicated and believing it is fulfillment. And the other is being not intoxicated, but infused with life and Holy Spirit awareness. I wouldn't use, you know, at first I used the word intoxicated with the Spirit, and then I thought, the word toxic is in there, and that doesn't sound right to me. You agree? The Holy Spirit is in no way toxic. I don't think you can OD on him. But I'd sure love to see you try. So the other is being infused with life and Holy Spirit awareness because he says, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead. Christ shall give you life and don't be drunk, be filled. So in Ephesians 5, he's, he's comparing a dead, dark escape from reality to a new, lighted, conscious escape from fleshy appetites. Friends, when you get saved, you're what you have to escape. You have to escape your desires. You have to escape um, your inclinations. So I suggest to you this morning that that's the same thing that he does here in this verse. He has not changed subjects. And by the way, the subject is not really the law. The subject is love. But you cannot love without the law. And this is what Paul is trying to show us here. And I think I, think I have the, the skills, and I pray God gives me the gifts to get this across to us this morning. It's so important. This is why you became a Christian for this moment. Oh, no one anything but to love him. That's the fulfillment of the law. We can all go home. So why do I say that? It's because since the beginning of chapter 12, Paul has been giving us a spiritual application. Remember what I've been telling you, chapters 1 through 11, a doctrine. He's, he's renewing our minds, right? He's renewing our minds, not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by renewing our minds. And now that our minds are renewed, we have to do something with that. We have to enter into his labors, right? The fields are white for harvest, but the laborers are few, the Lord said. So let's put out some many laborers. So Paul's given us this spiritual application to all of life. You've been rescued from yourself. You probably didn't know this, but of the three classic enemies to the Christian, the world, the devil, and the flesh... The flesh just means you. You're a more potent enemy than those other two could ever plan to be. The fall made us exceedingly selfish, and Paul is trying to tell us we have power to overcome that and be free of it and not live for ourselves and not live as though we owed ourselves something. Oh, I owe it to myself. You ever hear people talk like that? Christian can't talk like that. Oh, I owe it to myself. So now it's time to give yourself to others. And this is the fulfillment of the law. This is Christianity in action. This is doctrine on steroids. You've been saved, friends. It's time to do something. It's time to enter into laboring with Christ for the souls of others, and it may cost you, but so what? You have new life, so act like it. You've been renewed, so show up and claim it. Show up for worship and be counted. This section goes all the way back to the beginning of our application in chapter 12, where he said the first thing, the first application, present your body, show up. I told you about my, my client many years ago as I was a uh, young contractor, 
His name was Jerry Sapphire. He was a Jewish lawyer, and so was his wife, Roberta. They were Jewish lawyers. And um, they hired our company. We did a whole lot of work. They had a, um, like a function hall over in Sharon. It was beautiful. <laughs> Ricky worked with us. He remembers. And, uh, and they loved me. And uh, we did a lot of work for them, and we did uh, a little yogurt shop for him downtown in Norwood. And he, one day he said, you know, he talked like this. He said, Danny Kassiri's going to win the contractor award. And I said, why, Jerry? And he said, you showed up. <laughs> he had this feeling, contractors don't show up. Don't be a Christian that doesn't show up and be like those contractors. Be someone that Jerry Sapphire could be proud of. So the first thing is show up, present your body, a living sacrifice. And then there's the second thing, be not conformed to the world. Don't be like the world. If you find yourself going along to get along, you really ought to step out of the crowd for a minute and, and examine this. There should be a tension when you're getting along too well in worldly things. There should be a tension. All right. The third thing, be transformed. So there's a negative and a positive. Don't be this, be this, right? Be transformed. But have you noticed these are all things that you have to do? That's why we call them applications. We're applying the doctrine we now have. We're free from ourselves. We're free from a fear of death. Nothing can touch us. We're filled with the love of Christ and the power of God and the Holy Spirit. And it's time now to love other people in the way that Christ loves. And then there's a third thing. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of our minds. What an awesome thought, the renewing of our minds. I remember when it started, it was very conscious with me. I was an opinionated guy. I, I know it's hard to believe <laughs> But I had all these different views and these different opinions. And I could tell you why. I could tell you what study I read from Time Magazine, New York Times, you know. And then one day, as I was, you know, well into my Bible, I thought, you know, the things I thought were true, I probably have to query every single one of them again. I have to go back and think everything I thought was true is probably not true. And I have to weigh it against the word of God. And if it doesn't weigh up, I have to throw it out and say it's not true anymore. And you know what people call you when you do that? A hypocrite. Because you grew. You changed your mind. You found out something. But do it anyway. And so we have these three things. But it all culminates in this fourth thing. And the fourth thing is pouring forth the love of Christ that lives and reigns in us by owing no man anything but to love him. So let's go back for a moment and look at this connection. Chapter 13 relates to the application of Christian deportment in the society around us. Obey the laws. There's no government except from God. How does he say it? Let every soul be subject to governing authorities. There's no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So obey the authorities. So he, he, he tells us that point of law, all right? He tells us how to relate, how to treat, how to be part of a community, which, you know, this is the thing about Christianity that is so different from Judaism. Judaism was this unique nation where everyone in the nation was covenanted as a citizen, and they obeyed the laws of that nation, which were God's laws. But when Christianity came about, people were saved in all, all the nations. And they had disparate constitutions, if you will, and differing laws. And so rather than say, oh, no, where you're born, you have, to, you have to bring in a theocracy there like Israel. He says, no, you're born there. Obey the laws that are there and do the work of Christ where, you're, where you were born again into. And so he's telling the whole empire, if you were born in Ephesus, obey the laws of Ephesus. Born in Thessalonica, Thessalonica. Rome, Rome. And they were all essentially under the umbrella of the Roman Empire. Um, 
But sections had their own laws. And you can see that when you go through the book of Acts. But chapter 13 tells us how to relate in general society with one another as Christians. And so in the first seven verses, he points to law and government. And why wouldn't he? He assures the believer that though he's saved out of this present evil world, he still has to live in it for a while. He also tells us our end is assured. Your end is assured. You're you're not struggling anymore with what's going to happen to you in the end. If Gabrielle's friend on the street is killed for evangelizing, he doesn't have to worry about where he's going. You see what I mean? So you can risk a little. Your life in Christ has just begun. And so when you're born again, you're not exempt from human laws and statutes. And and, and Paul wants to make us know that. And law in general is a gift from God for propagating the common good and safety of all men. And how could a man move toward the perfection of love toward his fellow man without being a law-abiding citizen of the society that they inhabit together? That would be a contradiction of love, wouldn't it? I'm going to try to illustrate that to you. But what Paul's doing here is he's using all these different ways and thoughts and teachings and examples to put together one great symphony, which is your Christian life. And I use the term symphony because Martin Lloyd-Jones brought up the, the illustration. I liked it so much I embellished it, so it goes like this. Do you know what a symphony is? You ever been to a symphony? It's a long musical score with many parts. And the parts are called movements. And then there's sections of instruments. There's woodwinds and strings and brass and percussion sections. And you bring all this together, but it's one message you're trying to get across. This is what Paul's doing here. So they come in parts or movements. And the first... Movement sets the stage and is often in a fast tempo in a major key. You know, a nice key that's easy to listen to, and you're getting into it. And then the, the second one comes in, and it complements it, but the key might go to a minor key, and it might slow down and become more lyrical. There might be a little more to listen to than in the first. And then the third introduces a, a more lighthearted, poetic stage, the third movement, right? Um... One might even feel compelled to dance to the third movement. Yet the dance would be interrupted by a dissonant chord, something unexpected. In other words, maybe Paul would talk about election. Something controversial was going along. This symphony was going along nice until he said, Jacob, have I loved and Esau, have I hated. It's going along nice. There's a dissonant chord here in the third in the third act, right? The third movement. And so the dance is interrupted and, it, and it's more serious now. And you're getting that edgy clarinet feeling coming in, right? But by the fourth movement, the composer returns to the key and tempo of the first. And you're so glad and you're relieved because you're back and it's where you wanted to be. And he took you full circle. It's a complete story that the composer is telling here. But he does it with different tempos. He does it with different instruments, different keys and chord changes. He speaks to us with brass instruments, with woodwind, with string and percussion sections. But in the end, the final movement ties it all together with the happy story of the first movement. Only now we know why the first movement exists. Even the word symphony means an agreement of sound. So think of the epistle as a symphony. Last night, Karen was cooking. I went in the other room, and I was waiting for something to get cooked. And I turned on the television, and who do you suppose was on? The Celtic ladies. No, the Celtic women, they're called, right? The Celtic women. We have a knockoff CD called the Celtic Ladies. But I don't know if you've ever seen them, but they're pretty awesome. They're pretty awesome. And they run around with their violins, and they're all beautiful, and their voices, and they don't miss a beat. 
And um, I was thinking about this as, as that was on, but she was in the other room, so I turned the TV up real loud so she could hear it. But um, So I've embellished the illustration a bit because I like the illustration. But that's Paul's writing style. He does not change subjects quickly and erratically, but he does that purposefully. He does it to give more information and then to tie it all together. He unfolds his message with different movements of thought, and that is what we have here today. So let's not use this wonderful culmination of the last few passages to speak about the evils of debt and God's prohibition upon loans and mortgages. Now, I know that old-time evangelicals have been taught this way. I want to disabuse you of that now because I can show you from Scripture that, um, first of all, it's perfectly right in the eyes of God to lend money or to borrow money and to be on a loan payment. There's nothing wrong with that, all right? Jesus said, give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Deuteronomy 15 says, if there's one among you, a poor man of your brethren, within any of the gates of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not burden your heart, nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whoever it may be. No, lending is a good thing, all right? Now, of course you got to pay it back so you don't go overboard. But I don't want to deal with lending today. I just want to show you this is not a verse about lending. All right? So when you think of yourself very wise and you say things like, neither a borrower nor a lender be, know that you're quoting Shakespeare and not Jesus. Okay? And just so you know, the guy that said that, Polonius from Hamlet, was an evil guy. Just so you know. To put it in context, he's a counselor with selfish intentions who said that. Done. So what is it Paul is saying then? He's telling us that we should strive to be self-sufficient so we're not a burden, right? I haven't borrowed, I've given instead, right? But at the same time, we're, we're to allow others to become a burden to us. Treat them as though we owe them something. In fact, we must insist on letting our fellow man infringe upon our time. You ever look at the caller ID? Be honest now and say, oh, not answering. You got to allow your fellow man to infringe upon your time, on your money on your conveniences, and on your affections. That's what being a Christian really is. There's a cost. We must treat them all as though we owed them something. We ought to be in in a continual state of offering to our fellow man as though we owed him, even though technically our account is balanced. We owe him nothing. We're not a burden to him personally or financially, hence the mention of debt, and that's why he invokes the debt thing here. But we are to show him that we are gladly willing to expend our own worldly and spiritual capital to lift him up and to walk beside him in his moment of need and strife. And a thought comes to me as I, as I just read those words from my notes. Peter standing at the beautiful gate, and the crippled man's there saying, alms for the poor, and Peter says, well, I don't have any, I don't have any money. Silver and gold have I none, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. You know, there was a great story I read from A.W. Criswell. Anyone remember Criswell? Old, uh, commentator, the scriptures, old preacher back in the 70s. The picture on the book, he's got this big bright blue suit with a big thick orange tie. So you know it's back in the 70s. And uh, bushy blonde hair. Well, he gave this example. He talked about this, what he called a mighty theologian, Duns Scotus, a Scotch theologian, the 13th century. And he went down to see the Pope. And I looked it up. It would have been Pope Benedictus the 16th. 
And so he goes down to see the Pope. And the Pope is showing off the Vatican. Well, it wasn't the Vatican yet. It was the Lateran Palace. And he's showing it off to Dun Scotus. And the Catholic Church had become wealthy. And he opened a chest of gold and silver and jewels and ornaments. And the Pope's running his hands through these valuable things. And he said to Dun Scotus, no longer does the church have to say silver and gold, have I none? And Dunn said, yes, but no longer can she say in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. What have you traded for your gold, Father? No, our gold isn't really ours. We owe it. So we're to show him that we're gladly willing to expend our own worldly and spiritual capital to lift him up and walk beside him in his moment of need and strife. Now, once again, I can use an illustration of a parent and a child here. It works very well. Now, you may remember this complements very well what I talked about, I'm going to say about five or six weeks ago from chapter 12 about brotherly love, Philadelphia, remember? Um, Complements it very well here. But... The parent-child relationship is an illustration here. No dedicated parent is burdened or annoyed when his or her children ask for something. I actually like it. I like being the, the source, the one that can help my boys. And I know that you do too. I've noticed that the feeling does not expire when our children reach adulthood. You know, I can... Tell you another story. My father-in-law is a great patriarch of our family. And whenever we're all down there, Karen's family, there's a bunch of us, I don't know, 12 or 15 at a table, takes us out to a great restaurant. And, um, and of course, he pays the bill. Well, one year we went out, and I said, you know, I've never paid the bill. I'm a man now. I, I should pay the bill. So when I went in, I gave the, the card to the waitress, and I said, I want the bill to come to me, to no one else. It's a trick I learned from him, by the way. And um, so the meal was over. Of course, it was a wonderful meal, Italian restaurant. And she brought over the little clipboard, and she handed it to me, and he said, what's going on? And it startled him. And I, and I said, Karen, hold your father down. <laughs> and I signed this thing. And it ruined the rest of the week. He was not happy. That was his to give to me. He didn't want me to pay it back. And I've learned that from him. The parent doesn't owe the child anything. He's done his duty to the child. The child's been raised well and and is in a good place. And I must say, I know of no loving family where the children are reluctant or afraid to ask for good things from their parents. My kids aren't afraid to ask me. In fact, on Friday, after Thanksgiving, Joe and his fiancée, Susan, and her father had all planned to go to a hockey game. They went to the Bruins game. I hope Jeremiah didn't go because they lost terribly and... They're not fans, but Jeremiah, he's still wiping away the tears over there. <laughs> no, Jeremiah's a great fan, as you know. And um, so they went into the hockey game, and um, just before they, they left, they said, well, well, we'll pick up Daniel in town, because Daniel lives in the city now. And they said, and we'll go into the North End, we'll get an Italian meal at one of the places, and then we'll go to Mike's Bakery. Anybody? Mike's Bakery. It's the famous Italian bakery in town. And when you go there, you're going to wait in line because it's the best. And you're going to wait in line. And the last time Joe wait, went there, he waited in line. And you wait, say, your half hour or your hour, whatever it might be. And you get up there, and he ordered his stuff, and they said cash only. He didn't know. So he has to get out of line. He has no cash. You don't get Kids don't even know what cash is today, I don't think. I don't even know if they know what paper is. But um, so he's standing there, and, you know, a guy behind him said, order up what you want, which is a really good thing to do. You know what I mean? So he got what he wanted. But this time he said, Dad, you know, we're going in there. He goes, you got any cash? <laughs> he remembered. 
And I said, there's probably some in my wallet. So I go and I look in the wallet. The kids all know where the wallet is. If they need it, they just go in there. But there was a $100 bill, and I think there was three or four 20s, maybe a five or a couple ones. Give me the 100 <laughs> I'm telling you, it's my son. I'm not burdened. You know what I mean? I'll never see that $100 bill again in existence. You know what I mean? Except J- James might give me $100. <laughs> but the parent doesn't feel he, owe, he, doesn't feel he owes it. He graciously wants to give it to him. I know you fathers know what I'm talking about. We've talked about it. You know? And one of you said to me, I don't regret anything I've given to my kids. You have to feel that way as a Christian with the Christian brethren. That's what this fulfillment of the law thing is. It's no more accounting. It's just an outpouring of, the, of, of whatever you have that fulfills a need. And money always makes a good illustration, but there's so many other things, right? Love is not burdened by the needs of the loved one. It's selfishness that's burdened by the needs of the loved one. Love, true love is not burdened. When someone has a need. True love isn't burdened just because you now have to exercise it. It's like, oh, I love talking about love, but this showing it is really, it's not my thing. Love is exercised by the needs of others. It's strengthened. It's perfected by fulfilling the needs of others. It owes nothing, but it gives it all away anyways. You don't owe it, but you give it anyway. That's what love is. It's like a mother. I remember my grandmother lived across the street. Like for most of our lives, we, we'd get up in the morning, we'd wander around a little, and now it's time to go to grandma's. We go over to grandma's. I remember being over there one time. I was probably about 12 years old, and I sat down on my grandfather's rocker in front of his window looking outside right there in the kitchen dining room, and I saw her looking around. What can I give you? What can I give you? She had to find something to give me. Right? The Portuguese mothers are all shaking their heads. They know. The, the Portuguese mother and grandmother, the, you know, doesn't matter. The, the Irish, the Italian, doesn't matter who you are. The mother wants to give something. The grandmother, it just, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his son to him. It's always this giving that comes out of love. And that's why parents make a great example a great illustration here of what a Christian should be like. So love would rather give it all. Love would rather give it all away without withholding a single might, whether it be of goods or affections. So it may be said that love transcends the law. It fulfills the law. But it doesn't disregard the components of the law. That's why Paul has to list them again. And as I told you, lists are always impartial in the New Testament. No matter what they are, whether they're gifts, whether they're virtues, whether they're vices. They're always, they're always partial lists, a sampling. Because he's not teaching on that. He's using that to teach this. You follow me? So the particulars of love still must be observed. They are mandatory. We cannot fulfill love apart from the law. And so Paul makes that very point this way. Verse 9. For the commandments. All right. Here's the third movement. The dissonant movement. Ah, commandments. Thou shalt not do stuff. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment. Wait a minute. Those aren't in order. He forgot the order. Paul doesn't know the order of Moses' commandments. And he doesn't know. There's only five listed. Friends, he's giving a sampling on purpose. I've heard people say, oh, it's out of order. They're all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So if you love him, don't steal his wife. If you love him, don't want his stuff. If you love him, don't lie about him. Right? So this is the composer's third movement. It asks the question of the audience. It asks with a 
different sound and a dissonant chord. This is where the oboes and the clarinets come in with their edgy sounds. It asks, if you have not stolen from your neighbor, if you have not taken his wife, if you have not covered his stuff, if you have not lied about him, or heaven forbid, murdered him, may you rightly say that you loved him? I never did him any harm. Did you fulfill the law? Of course not. Just because you walked by a guy and didn't shoot him, does that mean you, you loved him? But if you walked by him and shoot him, you obviously didn't love him. You have to have both the components and the outpouring of the fulfillment. Okay, who shall I use for my next illustration? I've had a number of really good males at the Chiquelli home. And, and they're very good cooks over there. And one night we were there and we were eating lamb. Really good braised lamb. And we were eating out, it out in this back room that I built for them 13 years ago. And uh, we're having this wonderful dinner. Some of you were there. And um, I remember getting up and I walked in the kitchen maybe to get something else. And I looked at the pot on the stove and there was a tentacle hanging out of the pot. And I said, Bob's cooking an octopus. I said, why are you cooking an octopus? And Bob said, well, that's for tomorrow. <laughs> He's getting it ready. But that's just a side issue of the story. But um, when we left, having fared sumptuously, right, um, I usually do this. I, I go back and I listen to see what people say about me when I left. And so I heard Bob say to Terry, he said, you know, Dan really loves us. And she said, well, yeah, I know, but why do you say that? Why do you say he loves us? And, and Bob said, because I counted the silverware, and they didn't take any. <laughs> you know, he, he didn't, he didn't um, you know, lie about us, or, you know, he didn't, he didn't hurt anybody. So um, I guess that's love. He didn't steal. He didn't covet our stuff. Now, it's different when I go to the listies. I almost, almost have a full set of steak knives. <laughs> <laughs> but they're gracious, and they know. Um, no, but that, how could that be love? You know, Dan and Karen, they love us so much. Whenever they're here, they never steal anything. No, but it could be the other way, too. They, they, could, they could say, gee, they're so loving, but why do they always have to steal something when they come over? It can't be either. It has to be both. The components have to be there. And then the overwhelming... Fulfillment of the love has to be there. The whole expression has to be there. So Paul tells us, you can't love him by coveting his stuff. You can't love him by lying about him. But just not lying about him and not coveting his stuff isn't loving him either. There's a fullness to it he's trying to show us. So owe him nothing but to love him. This is the point he's making. Your non-Christian friends all think that they'll go to heaven because they've, they've done no harm to their neighbor. You hear people say it. You've heard people say, how many times have you heard, I haven't hurt anyone. Why wouldn't I go? God ought to be happy to have a man like me in, in his company. I'm a good person and so on. I pay my taxes, right? I vote for the Republican. I do the right thing. You know, we have a natural tendency to think of ourselves good by what we have not done. But when asked what we've done, we have to answer like the Pharisee. Do you want to answer like the Pharisee? Or how about the rich young ruler? I've obeyed all my life. <laughs> you know, is that all you got to say? If you love by obeying the law only, you're blind to what love is. And you're the Pharisee. What did it say in Bill's reading this morning? And then the Pharisees, who were lovers of money. <laughs> You've got to love these editorials they throw in there. So you answer like the rich young ruler. I've observed the law. Surely if anyone merits the love of God, it's people like me. I've kept these and more, master, all my life. Good teacher. Right? 
Yet in all your goodness, in all your careful intentions not to hurt anyone, you've been blinded to the fact that you've never really loved. You never had a compulsion to pour out of yourself for the benefit of someone else. This is what Paul's saying. You've carefully obeyed the law and followed the thou shalt nots. And I've shown you how silly that is to think that that's love. You never owed anyone your love. If you gave it, it was out of your own benevolence. Maybe you were just in a good mood. Not by compulsion of spirit, much less not by the compulsion of the spirit of Christ. If you have the Holy Spirit, your heart ought to overflow with love for the other person. And I'm not just talking about our brethren. I'm talking about, Jesus said, love your enemies. Love those who hurt you, persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. So I'm of the opinion that what the apostle is saying here is that that kind of love fulfills the law of God, but it's really impossible to keep. It's almost, maybe it's completely an impossible hurdle to make. It's impossible to fulfill one's self by following the law of God. To fulfill the law of God of yourself. We already know that's impossible, right? Now, I know you'll think that I'll say what others have said about this. You'll think that what I'm going to say is only the believer has the Holy Spirit and can fulfill the law. And in part, that's what I'm going to say. But if that was true, if that was automatic, Paul wouldn't have written the epistle. You see... You have the power to fulfill the law and transcend the law of Christ by fulfilling the law of love. But it doesn't just happen. You have to do it. It's not automatic. If our life in Christ, if our new life in the Spirit was automatic, the apostle would not have said in the first two verses of Romans 12 that we must do something. It would just be automatic. He wouldn't say, present your bodies. He would just know that you would. You know, let, let, let me tell you what I mean by this automatic thing. I have an example. I remember I've had some work done. I've been in the hospital a few times, as you know, over the years, over the decades. And um, I'm not a good patient. I'm not trusting. Oh, sure, stick that in. No, I'm not, you know, I'm not, that's not me, you know. Um, and I fret everything. And, you know, the last time I went to the hospital, I said to Karen, you know what? I remember I was 62. I said, I'm 62 years old, and I'm a man of God. I said, I'm going to take it in stride this time. I'm going to just, I'm just going to strive to be faithful in it and not complain. It wasn't automatic, but as soon as I decided to do it, I did it. You see what I mean? It wasn't automatic. It didn't just happen because the Spirit was in me, you know? Um, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. So even though you have the Holy Spirit, you may not fulfill the law of love. It's not automatic. You have to go out and do it. So I'll say that what Paul is saying here is that there are many Christians who will not fulfill the law of love. They will not fulfill it because they think it's automatic and it's not. Friends, if our life in Christ was automatic, he, he wouldn't have had to write the application of Romans 12. He wouldn't have to say, present your bodies. He wouldn't have to say, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. There's so much that we must do. Never believe that because Christ established our regeneration for us, that we're not to contribute to it now, that we're imbued with power from on high. It's just now our struggles are in righteousness. And they're out of a right motive. And they're for a right purpose and in dedication to the one and true and living God. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I wanted to know that my faith would take me through a hard place, but it wasn't automatic. I had to decide that I was going to work at it. And I was going to fight off the voices in me that complained so much. Christ chose you, friends. This is the doctrine. He singled you out for salvation among the whole mass of humanity. What a privilege. There was nothing you could have done to entice him to choose you. It was entirely of his own accord and for his own pleasure to save you. He didn't consult you. He didn't ask for suggestions, and he did not need your contributions. He simply saved you. From chapter 8, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And then he said, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you have your salvation. It won't be taken. You have your assurance. You have your assurance that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So what do you got to lose by risking everything to love someone? So he gives us the doctrine. He gives us the assurance. But now he makes demands. Now he makes demands. And the demand is this. You have the power, and the power is in your hand. It's not automatic. You have to apply it. You must enter into the labors. Why? Because as Christ paid our sin debt to the Father, so we are in debt, not to God. Our debt's paid to God, not to Christ, but to our fellow man. So don't owe him money. Don't owe him anything just to love him. It seems as though Paul is adding a new dimension to the lesson on love and debt. Go back to the very beginning of the epistle, though, and you'll find this was the subject all along. Go back to all the way to chapter 1 where Paul says, I am a debtor. Right in chapter 1 he said it. That's why I say this is the, the thing about a, a series. We want to remember, we're trying to look at this whole thing as one. And poor Martin Lloyd-Jones took 13 years to do this. I'm taking two or so. It's almost two. I am a debtor to who? To God? No. To Greeks and barbarians. To wise and unwise. Paul is a debtor to his fellow man, saved and unsaved. And he knows it, and he said it at the beginning. For as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. So what do I owe you? I owe you the saving gospel of Christ. And nothing less than that. Why? Because I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Because it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. From my faith to your faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So I am a debtor, Paul said, right at the beginning. And here again, he's saying, now you are a debtor. You be like me. He comes right out and says it in other places. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Christ didn't owe us a thing, but he paid it all anyway. The most Christ-like thing you can do is love your brother. I have it on good authority that the word translated power that the gospel is the power of God to salvation, could also be translated prescription. Isn't that interesting? It is the prescription of God to salvation. And so you see your neighbor suffering from the same malady that you so sorely suffered from yourself until someone offered you the cure. You were suffering and someone offered you the cure. They gave you the prescription. They said, here it is. They gave you the prescription over the counter. Megan gave it to you at CVS. Here it is. Here's the prescription. Megan the evangelist behind the counter. 
And what did you do? You put it in your pocket. You didn't fill it at the pharmacy. I don't need that. I don't need that medicine. And what happened? The sickness persisted. Maybe you let the sickness get you down lower and lower, believing that there was no cure. But then you put your hand in your pocket and you, you found the prescription. And you took it out. And it was the gospel of Christ. And it said, and this is the will of him who sent me. That everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. That was my Thanksgiving sermon. <laughs> I took the prescription out of their pockets. They had it in their pockets all these years. Now, let's take it out. So what do we owe the unbeliever? We owe him Christ's love, which is fulfilled in Christ's offer. Paul linked it. I'm a debtor. To barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, right? I'm a debtor. What do I owe him? The gospel of Christ. It's said this way throughout the New Testament. It's not automatic. Paul said, work out your own salvation. I'm done working it out in you. I've given you the power. Now you enter into the labor. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You see, enter into the labor because it's God working in you. James said it this way, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And he gave the famous challenge, Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. And you'll be standing there looking at your shoes like, <laughs> can't do that. Jesus said it famously to Peter. And we read, he said to him a third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Will you stop bothering me about this? And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, I hope you know he didn't mean give him bread. Feed my sheep. Peter was a great feeder of sheep, right? Love your brother. Go overboard. It's going to cost you as the evangelist on the street. It's going to cost you to preach the gospel. It's going to cost you. Faith without works is dead. So love apart from works is also dead. You know, there's a few things that I memorize in life, very few from the lexicon, but one thing is agape love. Agape is known by the actions that it prompts. No action, no love. Love is invisible until it's expressed, and then everyone can see it. Verse 10. He brings together the thing about the law. law love does no harm to a neighbor. You don't steal from him. You don't covet him, his stuff. You don't take his wife, right? You don't kill him. You don't lie about him. Does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Our sin debt is paid, our salvation is secure, but our debt to the souls of our neighbors is yet unpaid, and it is in our power to pay it. Owe him nothing but to love him. Our Father, apply this most sublime teaching to the hearts of every believer this day, O Lord. And let us see the church rise up in a great witness of Christ's love in a time where it is so sorely needed, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.